Welcome to Behavior Babes Podcast, presented by me, Dr. Amanda Kelly. Hi, Becca. Are you there? I am, Amanda. Thank you for joining us today. Before we begin, can you offer an introduction for our listeners? I sure can. So my name is Dr. Becca Tagg. I am a licensed psychologist and board-certified behavior analyst at the doctoral level. I currently live in southeastern North Carolina, which is fantastic. Um, I have two pugs. I worked as a school psychologist for about six years before going back and deciding I wanted to do a re-specialization in clinical psych um, and kind of went from there and then actually did, after my pre-doc and post-doc internships for clinical psych, I did another two-year post-doc master's in clinical psychopharm, so I actually have prescriptive privilege. And you're probably thinking, oh my God, that's a ton of school, and it is, especially when I tell you I dropped out of high school. So I think what I learned was um, when you get to study what you're really stoked about, learning is actually awesome. (laughs) And so I kind of just took that and ran with it once I learned what I liked learning about. Uh, we're like birds of a feather there in that way. I think I had maybe 15 years in college, but I um, had a 1.84 GPA in my first semester. I was not jazzed about anything before noon and about uh, people who couldn't inspire me. And I was very uh, in search of, right, kind of what I was mm-hmm. jazzed about. Um, for me, I started as an elementary education teacher and then pursued behavior analysis. Um, you mentioned dual certifications and prescriptive rights. Can you, that's a lot. Um, so how do they work together in concert with each other? And then in what order did you pursue that and why? Yeah, so those are great questions. And I don't know that my answers are always linear, but they will be goal-directed. So um, I dropped out of high school, decided to go back to school, Um, And I actually was at a therapeutic boarding school for high school um, that was shut down for child abuse. And so when it was time to decide what I was going to do with myself, I thought kids spend an inordinate amount of time in the educational setting. And so if I want to help kids, um, which is kind of what I wanted to do, then being able to work in the school setting in some way would be really helpful. And my mom suggested school psychology because she said they're written into the law, (laughs) and so then that would be job security. So I did that and um, uh, went to Penn State and uh, did a bunch of different practicum. And I found that I just really liked the kids that were – maybe not always selected as the favorite of everybody else. So usually the kids that thought about things a little bit differently or were kind of contrary. And I think I understood them in a different way. I kind of conceptualized anxiety being under that. I knew that's what it was for me, right? In hindsight, I was definitely anxious as a teen and probably as an elementary-aged kiddo too, but it came off in a way that I was trying to protect myself from this anxiety, right? Because if people know you're anxious, then they can potentially hurt you, and that's really scary. And so um, I was kind of conceptualizing the kids I was seeing in that way, and um, 
ended up really liking it and feeling like I was able to lean in towards them with compassion. And then burned out in the school system. I uh, just kept getting more and more work, right? Like the reinforcement for being good at my job was more work, which made me feel not good at my job, <laughs> and that sucked. Um, and so I said, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to school and do clinical psych and do private work and um, have been doing that since. And when I was in the schools, I was getting a lot of the kids with ASD and at the alternative placement schools, and I felt like I didn't have enough behavior knowledge to be successful and, like, really help in that setting and those settings. And so I did um, the certificate of ABA work through um, Penn State. And I actually didn't take the exam for two and a half, almost three years after I finished the coursework. So that it was more knowledge for me. And I had been to Penn State, so I was sort of familiar with it. And then I was in California doing um, some of my re-specialization training out in San Diego. I learned about um, there are some states that have what's called um, medical psychology or RXP, and so psychologists who have an additional two years of coursework um, specific to psychopharmacology um, and then also some applied practica experiences are eligible to sit for yet another exam. It's called the PEP, um, the Psychopharm for Psychologists exam, and um, where permitted, uh, then you have prescriptive privilege, and I serve um, predominantly uh, military families, and so uh, North Carolina is not one of the states that recognizes it, but on a military installation, um, there is prescriptive privilege. And actually, Hawaii is one of the states that is um, currently, will probably be the next one that has it passed. They've been um, really fighting for more um, mental health support by psychologists related to prescribing out there. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, there's a lot of interest, uh, interesting parts in the overlap of disciplines. You know, we talk a lot about interdisciplinary collaboration, and you kind of embody that just within your own studies, your education, your background, and some of your current practices. If somebody were to ask you, are you a behavior analyst, would you, what would you say to that? I would say I am a behavior analyst. I'm a lot of different things. Um, it's interesting you mentioned the interdisciplinary practice. I, um, while I initially thought that that would help make me be a better clinician, and I do, I actually think that all of my training helped make me a better clinician. It has actually really gotten in my way in connecting with other people. So and I guess how do I say that differently? Like um, sometimes psychologists don't, you know, want to, work with me because I'm also a BCBA, or BCBAs have things to say because I'm also a psychologist, or um, the MDs that I work with respond in a different way because I'm not, they call me a nard, or not a real doctor, um, so uh, like I'm not an MD, right, and so I think that for me, I feel like it makes me a strong clinician, and I also think that it has made it challenging for me to feel like I totally fit in anywhere. Does that make sense? It does, and I think in some ways it's the opposite of what people might initially think, you know, and yes. in some respects it's like, you know, you're part of every group on the playground. You're welcome into every as you know aspect, but in a way 
um, you're kind of always a visitor, it feels like, in every group. Like, where's your true identity? Yeah. And when I asked that question, I, you got where I was kind of going. I wasn't trying to say, you know, are you a psychologist? Are you, you know, wh- where is your identity? But sort of how does, you know, being a behavior analyst impact your identity? And so you talked about some of the, the you know, relationships, some of the impressions. Why do you think there is that perspective or perception? And do you think it's geographically um, relevant or restricted, or do you think that's more global? You know, I really, I, so I'm not entirely sure because I'm in kind of my area here. Um, I, I also, though, um, I feel it more where I am geographically now because there's so few providers, period. Like, it's just I live in a rural area. And so that is actually what led me to create the Business Builders Facebook was because when I was moving from um, Southern California after my postdoc back to southeastern North Carolina, I got really nervous that I wasn't going to have a professional community and that I felt like I belonged. And I worked really hard to, like, love learning. And I finally found what I was really excited about, and I didn't want to lose that tribe around me. And so I thought, well, if I'm not going to be able to have it geographically, like physically, how can I try to create something like that and, like, use technology to maybe fill in the gaps of what I was worried I wasn't going to have? And now there's, like, 7,000 people in the group. So obviously other people are looking for it too. And so I think that that helps me connect, but that also shows me that there are the same thoughts elsewhere, right? So, like, um online people will say, well, you're a psychologist, so that's mentalistic. Or, um, you know, a psychologist BCBA is an oxymoron like Jumbo Shrimp. And so those people are globally that may say things like that. So I guess that wasn't my first gut reaction response of, I don't know, some in my small little area is only half true, right? Because I am in my area and for better or for worse, with the Internet, um, we are exposed to a variety of people. So I think it probably is overall. And, I, and I'll say I, I think I get more of it from my BCBA colleagues. I, that actually hurts my heart to say, but I think I get more of it, get more kind of, um, uh, I don't know, like people saying things about me being a psychologist in the BCBA from BCBAs than I do from psychologists about being a BCBA and a psychologist. Does that make sense? Like that was a lot of okay. No, of course. And it's curious too, but I think it's all information. And so when we look at um your experience, you know, part of the reason why I ask these questions is there are few, um, although there are several, I guess, uh it's relative to what your comparison is, uh, people who have multiple and dual certifications, right? As I mentioned before, I was a licensed teacher and a licensed behavior mm-hmm. analyst, but Licensed in the state to teach is different than licensed by the um, commerce, you know, and consumer affairs. But there are people who are also speech and language pathologists and behavior yeah. analysts, you know, occupational therapists and behavior analysts and lawyers uh, or some people going to law school who are behavior analysts. And I, I, I've always conceptualized behavior analysis as a science that helps other scientists. Um, like, like other somebody might know what direction we should go in and I can help us break that down or I can help us look at that in different steps or talk about the arrangement and the order in which we should do it. And so to me, it's that formula, that problem solving strategy. Um, How do you think we could work to change some of the 
the perception or misperception that maybe you're experiencing from a, some of your behavior analytic colleagues about about the beauty of those dual certifications because we are seeing that grow and also not even you know not that everyone has to go back to school but um, but the value of being really open-minded and knowing that we can learn from one another. What advice do you have there? Um, so I sort of think that, you know, the saying ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny, right? So like that idea that the individual's um, sort of development mirrors that of the population. And I kind of think that that's sort of where we are in behavior analysts, right? Like we're kind of in our teenage years. And, and I think that's, typical teenagery behavior, right? Like, I know better, and this isn't going to affect me. And I think that it's just a normal part of the developmental trajectory of the individual, and we're just seeing that mirrored in our field. I think it will change. I think um, time and just more interaction with other people and each individual's own learning history with interacting with other professionals is going to change that, right? Like, each time I interact with an SLP who can help me, right, and who changes my way of thinking a little bit and helps me help somebody in a better or different way or understand myself in a better or different way, that's reinforcing. And so I'm going to be more likely to lean into that collaboration. And so I think um, that we are able to kind of lean into that, it will just very naturally happen. When I, I oh, oh, sorry, you had cut out there for a second, um, but I also wanted to make a, a connection. Um, when I was working in um, Cambridge Public Schools outside of Boston about a decade ago, I had the really uh, good fortune to work with a clinical psychologist, a child psychiatrist, and a team of a couple of other behavior analysts. And to think of that being a decade ago is so mind-boggling. I know, right? I have the same thought. <laughs> <laughs> we don't even see it now, and we're so much further behind out here in, in Hawaii and other rural areas. Um, but it was that experience that it's not it's not that I was ever that I ever thought I was closed-minded, but it was having that experience at an early point in my career that programmed me, that trained me, that conditioned me to kind of expect that and almost to habituate that in my further um, opportunities. So I think what you're saying is the more people see it, the more they experience it. And that's, the, that's sort of the same reason why I think we all became believers of behavior analysis. It's like we saw it change behavior in lives. And so um, it's incredible. You and I think, too, like our training program, so most of our BCBA, our people in grad school for ABA, they don't do interdisciplinary training. So I think some of it is just that lack of exposure. And so um, one of the things that we're doing at my clinic is um, our students, we call them residents, and so once they hit their residency period, they do some overlapping training with other professionals, so OTs, speech language pathologists, counselors, psychologists, teachers, so that we're hopefully um, giving them that exposure early on because we can't fault people for what they don't know, right? You don't know what you don't know. And so those of us that have been around longer that are doing more of the training, then my hope is that we can start filling in some of those gaps where maybe we're seeing some, some gaps. Yeah. In Hawaii, we would say pukas, right, where we see some of those holes in the gaps 
you talked about the importance of creating a verbal community. Um, well, you talked about the importance of having one, and then in the absence of one, you mentioned the ABA Business Builders Group, uh, the community that you've created, which now has thousands of people in it. From doing that, um, what have you? What have been your experiences? Um, have what have you seen as some common um, benefits to doing that, and what feedback have you received from people in the group? Do you mind sharing? Of course. Um, so uh, I think it's great. I really, um, you know, sometimes you get an idea, and I think I don't know if this is going to work, but I'm going to give it a try. And um, it's been it's been awesome. So it also has been an immense amount of time and resources, and I think I underestimated that in the beginning. Um, so it's uh, been a Shannon Biagi helps now with that, which is a huge help. Um, so what I've learned is that people, uh, as far as for leadership and business ownership in our field, um, there are a lot of people that want to do it and they're not totally sure how and kind of struggling with similar things no matter where they're located. And it's interesting because it's these things that behavior analysis is really awesome at navigating and so sometimes when we're good at working with the kids and adults or whoever like is our identified patient or identified client we may have a hard time using the same principles and techniques in another context and so I joke sometimes about our own like ability to generalize from one setting to another isn't always stellar because people will ask questions and they'll say, well, if it was a kiddo doing that, what would you do? And they give this like insightful, scientific, socially valid response. And it's like, okay, so take that and apply it to this. It's just a different context. And so um, I think it's been, it's been really neat to see um, and help, I hope, people make connections about using behavior analysis in ways that are outside of what they initially thought ABA could do. Um, yeah. And you have a big emphasis on self-care and self-help. And the more that we take care of ourselves, the more we can help others. And that's an area where, as a behavior analyst, I'm really great at helping people getting their lives together. I think, you know, anything they ask me to help change, like you want to have your child hang up their clothes, you want to learn to do laundry, you want to, um, you know, put the dishes away, great. I come home and none of those things are done at my house ever. Um, mm-hmm. so, so what are some of your simplest and best strategies that you have uh, that you can share with us on self-care? Um, I think those of us that get into behavior analysis or any helping profession, I should probably say it that way, any of us that are called to help, um, we've been doing it our whole lives. You just didn't have a license for it or a degree for it, right? But we're called to do that as part of kind of who we are. And so I think that we set up these, we put ourselves in these situations, right? So if I'm a natural helper and then I go to school for a helping profession, I've then set myself up to be reinforced for this, like, the naturally occurring sort of repertoire of behaviors that I'm shaping up through school. And then it becomes we're so reinforced for helping others that it almost reinforces 
forces us for only helping others, and then we don't turn the same on ourselves, right? Because when I take care of myself, nobody is saying, way to go, Dr. Becca, you got eight hours of sleep. Usually if I wake up to emails of things that didn't get done, and then that's actually very punishing. And so I think one of the best ways to practice self-care is to first be aware of the ways in which you are not taking care of yourself. Um, and sometimes that us taking care of others means we aren't taking care of ourselves and it can feel kind of crappy to to say oh I can't help that person because that's kind of what our learning history is right but but we can't we will burn out and there are too many people that need us and there are too many people who don't love their job that right when you find what is awesome for you we want to keep you in it for longer our field needs great clinicians and we cannot have great clinicians if we're not taking care of ourselves. So I think the basic, um, get enough sleep, drink enough water. There's this meme that says, and it's something about like houseplants, it's like draws the parallels between humans and houseplants, and basically says that we are houseplants with um, complex emotions. And I think that's very true. Like we need enough water, we need sunlight, we need to be in some rich soil, right? Surround yourself with people who are excited about something the same stuff you are, but you are excited and positive and, you know, some sunshine is good for you. Get some good, clean water. All of those basics are usually the things that we're neglecting when we're not taking care of ourselves. Well, those are some excellent tips, and I want to thank you so much for your time today and already invite you back for another episode because we could keep going. Um, I just, again, really appreciate you and the diversity that you bring to the discussions today. Thank you, Amanda. I'm happy to come back anytime. (laughs) Wonderful. And for anyone who's looking for more information on behavior analysis, education, or anything sort of related to the science, visit www.behaviorbabe.com. Thank you.